Morrison promises wage cuts, Labor to reform NDIS, COVID rules changing, and good news on solar storage. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and I have retaken control of the start of the show. <laughs> As I am now the healthiest of the two of us, uh, as Van, the great, the glorious, the author of QAnon and on a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, has fallen to the super cold. Oh, man. But has dragged herself almost out of bed to be with us today. I've literally got as far as the library from the bed, which is how, how far? About five metres the library, which in most people's parlance would be a study, but we have a lot of books in this room. We do have a lot of books in, in this room. We don't live in a mega mansion. There's no there's no butler. Yes, despite what I read about myself in the somewhat fanciful fan fiction written on the internet, we do not live in a mansion. I am not the daughter of a casino baron. There is no inherited wealth here. No. You know, I'm looking forward to going to the Port Hacking High School Miranda 30th anniversary reunion on the weekend, actually, and thoroughly reimmersing myself in the class that I came from, actually. It'll be good fun, of course, our, and our bookcases in our quote-unquote library are all from that great purveyor of Swedish fine-quality furniture, <laughs> Ikea. And a shout-out to Adam, who does all the assembly whenever Ben and I move, taking down the Expedite and putting them back up again. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. It's, uh, it's really great. Look, uh, there's been a huge amount happened since we last spoke only on Sunday, which of course was Easter Sunday. Uh, that episode has gone gangbusters. Uh, if you're listening tonight, uh, if you're listening on Thursday, of course the election is on. The oh, isn't it? The situation is changing all the time. The election is interminable. Like, you and I are into this and I'm done already. Like, I'm seriously done. I don't know how much more of it I can stand. Well, look, the the good news on that front is the polls have Labor ahead anywhere from 53.47 to 55.45. Uh, very, very And a quickly. higher primary vote than the Liberals as well. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's within the margin of error in terms of the primary vote stuff, but look- it's it's tracking not too badly. I think Morrison's had a number of gaffes and failures, and we'll talk about some of those. One that I only just really quickly want to touch on is what's happened in the Solomon Islands. Of course, China has done a deal with the Solomon Islands. Barnaby Joyce, Deputy Prime Minister, Leader of the National Party, uh, has said- These are words that chill my soul. Can I just say, <laughs> every time somebody goes Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce, the only thing that stops me from toppling over is not hearing the words Acting Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce. Yeah, that, those words are actually more frightening. He has described- So situation- many reasons Australia should never develop a nuclear arsenal, and all of them are encapsulated in the phrase Acting Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce. Well, he has said that uh, the Solomons may well become our own little Cuba which, of course, is a reference to the Cold War era, Cuba, Russia, uh, United States standoff and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, that seems to be a bit overblown. It is a failure of diplomacy, obviously, by the Morrison government, uh, but I'm not sure we're at the point of uh, comparing it to a Cuban Missile Crisis. And, of course, Van, while you and I have been sick, uh, we've had the super cold, not the spicy cough, which some people are calling COVID. The virus that everyone's talking about. The virus that everyone's talking about. Um, we've got the less popular one. That's right. We're always into the bands that you don't know you like yet. Yeah, but you may well come to love <laughs> or at least be infected by. I'm literally dying, yeah. Um, so there's a few things on COVID that we should probably just touch on before we get into the main stories today. It's bad. It is very bad. Uh, so far, COVID deaths in Australia for 2022 uh, already double all of the deaths of 2020 and 2021 combined. So there have been 4,547 4, people die from COVID in Australia so far this year. In all of 2020 and 2021 combined, it was only 2,239. Now, you you might think this seems like a strange time to be easing restrictions, but that's exactly what's happening uh, in the eastern states. Uh, although I noticed Mark McGowan has a family member who has COVID and he will be doing a full seven-day isolation. But uh, if he was in the eastern states and that uh, exposure had occurred on Friday or Saturday, he wouldn't need to do that uh, isolation. 
The Guardian has a very good wrap-up of all the dot points around what's changing in the East uh, from this weekend. Uh, fundamentally, if you are near people who are vulnerable, elderly, have a disability, have an immunocompromised situation, wear a mask. That still absolutely applies. If you're in a large group setting and concerned about that, wear a mask. That absolutely still applies. Because the other element of this is that 5.2% of all the hospital beds in Australia are currently occupied by someone with COVID. Like my mum. Like your mum. My mum, who has terminal small cell cancer, is currently in hospital also with coronavirus. And I just want to thank all of the people who have been vaccinated and all the people who take precautions for the fact that my mother seems to have a very light case and my mother is, of course, triple vaccinated and repeats her instruction that I said on Sunday to everyone, like, make sure you're as vaccinated as possible um, because coronavirus, it is hoped, will not kill her. Um, and the good news about my mum is that they actually retested her because her symptoms were so light. They were like, maybe she doesn't have coronavirus. She does. And so she's in isolation. But I know my mother is listening to this and I just want her to know that I love her very much and I can't wait till she's out of isolation. This has been very scary. It has been very scary. And our thoughts, obviously, Van, I know lots of our listeners have written to us with expressing their thoughts and solidarity with you and your mum. And we obviously want to give that same back to all of our listeners who are going through what is a very scary time for many thousands of families right around the country. Speaking of a scary time, let's talk about the election. Yes, while the dog yanks at your hand and seems to plead for attention in the most adorably cute way possible. So much cuter than the election. Ben, I can't bear it. Like, seriously, I can't bear it. It's only been like a week and a half. And maybe it's because, you know, I'm ill, but I feel like I've been trapped in the house with this election indefinitely. Like, I'm in one of those time loop movies, but the only thing that's happening is the election. There's no, like, turkey festival or Groundhog Day or, you know, cool Palm Springs wedding or anything. I'm just stuck with the election. And Scott Morrison saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Well, it's been it, it has been a difficult ride, and we've talked about you know we've talked about how the media covers the election. We've talked about the differences between policy and and speculation. And you know, one of the things that's come out in the last few days, uh, really, he kind of quietly announced on Saturday that he was going to bring back all of the industrial relations reforms. Yeah, slipped that one in, just slipped it in. You in know, during a- Easter. Actually, yeah, during Easter when he said he wouldn't be campaigning because he's a very holy man. Yeah, He's yeah. a very holy man. I am really interested to know which holy book he read because I know the Bible very well and I don't see anything from that in his behaviour. No. Like no. certainly not the stuff from the second half. Anyway. Um, so you th- check out your article, uh, The uh, Prosperity Doctrine. Morrison. Oh, neoliberal Jesusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. neoliberal Jesusing Scott Morrison style. Yeah, like uh, I just. It's a good article. I mean, look, I'm I'm not a I'm not a religious authority. I'm in no position to dispense a judgment. But personally, on personal level, yeah. I consider him well, heretical. Like I do. I just and, he's heretical. He's missing the entire like of and, the Christ part. I really want to focus in on what he was talking about because. Um, putting putting the religious elements of the timing aside, he he was really announcing that he intends to make it easier for multinational corporations, large employers in particular, to cut wages. And and it comes on the back of not biblical. In fact, there are no. specific instructions in the Bible to share what you have with your employees. Yeah. Yeah. So so I think you know it comes on the back of him so far in the campaign making a job announcement at the Ream factory that's going to offshore a third of its workforce to Vietnam. Yeah, I, I uh, mean, I love that. Literally scrap heaping a third of their workforce. Yeah. It, it, it's the, the very next day he was at a company announcing another subsidy for that company, which just happens to be chaired by a former Liberal minister. Robert Hill, who I'm sure people who were desperately trying to stop uranium mining in the Northern Territory remember very well. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, then in WA – he made a, a, a contract announcement for two new ships. Of From course, a defence contractor called Austal. Yeah, who we, who have been found to have been underpaying people and exploiting temporary migrant workers. And 
It turns out we've, we now know from our friends at the ETU, the Electrical Trade Union, Praise that, them. that they wrote to Scott Morrison a full two weeks before he made that visit and that announcement informing him of the Fairwick Ombudsman, that's a government department that Scott Morrison's government runs, uh, had found that there had been underpayments and asking him to put in place processes to ensure it didn't happen again and to put in place processes to ensure that anybody getting government contracts wasn't exploiting temporary migrant workers. And, of course, they received no response, except I guess you could say Morrison turning up and making the announcement of $134 million, I believe, worth of contracting without even mentioning the this shocking underpayment. And they're a defence contractor. Like, here's a question. Why is a defence contractor supplying, like, Australian defence using exploited temporary migrant labour? And underpaying them. Yeah, and this is an issue, and this is what you and I were talking about when we heard this story, because the ETU have been trying to get people to pay attention what's going on yeah. there, and good on them because they got the money back. They won yeah. Yeah. and restored to these workers who are from the Philippines what they were due. But is it not a national security risk to, A, use, you know. Absolutely. Like, and it's, underpay it's, those people. I mean, that gives rather a lot of people quite, who have no legal obligation to this country and certainly don't even have the right to vote when they work here because of the way this scheme works. Gives them a rather powerful motivation to maybe, I don't know, not be huge fans of Australian well, defence policy. And let's be really clear, it, every global corruption index clearly shows that if you underpay people in key positions, whether they're police officers, people in the defence supply chain, people in the defence force, you create a situation where there is more likely to be corruption because, of course, these people are in a position of power. They either have knowledge of things that other people want to have knowledge of. In the case of a defence contractor, knowledge of how our systems work, knowledge of how our ships work. Oh, you can get on my Twitter and see the stuff I'm sharing from the war in Ukraine to see how knowledge of systems is absolutely vital to yeah. a war effort anywhere. And and to, to leave us so exposed by having a contractor underpay the legal minimum, not even, not even just, pay, you know, like I'm not even talking about these people should be paid really, really well. I'm saying they weren't even paid the legal minimum. It, it absolutely creates an environment. Now, I'm not saying these workers have done anything wrong. And Scott Morrison has incentivised that company yeah. to do so again because yeah. they've been rewarded with more contracts despite the fact they are ripping off an imported, exploited workforce. I mean, it just, it, you know, and let's be honest, the Liberals are the first to stand up and wrap themselves in the flag and put on the yeah. slouch hat and, you know, do the dance of the Anzac biscuits. Like, it's just... And yet again, we see them fail veterans. We see, see them make absolutely inane defence decisions. And now they're parceling out a contract to a company whose labour practices are actually uh, national security. And risk. of course, that, that later that day, we found out that the promised uh, ship that was to be built in Australia is not being built in Australia. And they've, bought, and they've bought a secondhand uh, merchant vessel from the Canary Islands that well-known uh, place that people go to always pay their taxes in full. Uh, it just happens to be at a much lower rate than anywhere else they might pay them in full. Uh, yeah, like it's just ridiculous. And it gives us a sense of what Scott Morrison's about because also in that trip to WA, he announced a new wage-setting process for major projects that would lock wages. Was this at the breakfast? Yeah, this is at the breakfast. The, the men's business breakfast. breakfast. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it wasn't technically a men's breakfast. There were a lot of men there. There were a lot of like men. Like a there. suspicious number of men. It, well, like if I saw that many men on in a train carriage at night, I wouldn't get into the carriage. Well, you know, that's that's a fair call. I mean, it was a lot of men. Um, it, it, the WA Chamber of Commerce breakfast event with Scott Morrison a more friendly crowd I don't think he's going to find throughout the entire campaign. Uh, and, of course, he used the opportunity to say that he would put in place this new arrangement whereby uh, major projects would be subject to agreements for their entire life. So this means that instead of a three- or a four-year agreement where you negotiate wage increases, the company could say, 
well, this project's going to take 15 years and we're going to have a 15-year agreement and your wages will go up by whatever the minimum wage increase is. Now, that will cut that will cut pay for workers. And, and the ACTU, Australian unions, have done a great job straight up coming up with a list of projects where workers would have had their wages cut by anywhere up to half a percentage point. Um, and you think about that over the course of five, six, seven, ten years, that, that racks up. You're talking thousands of dollars taken out of workers' pockets. So anybody who's worked on or knows somebody who's worked on any of these, I'm going to list them because they're big projects. Transco Power, Snowy Hydro 2.0, M4M Link Tunnels, the Roselle Interchange and the Western Harbour Tunnel in New South Wales. All those workers would have had a pay cut. Queens Wharf and Cross River Rail in Queensland. Ion Electrical in South Australia. Metro Tunnel and Melbourne Major Roads across Victoria. One Esplanade Project and the MetroNet in WA. All the workers involved in those projects would have got paid less under this arrangement. And, of course, all the major projects going forward, you would expect if Morrison wins, you'll get paid less as well. So it's a pretty... I mean, which is exactly what you want in a cost-of-living crisis. Right? Like, it's a cost-of-living crisis created by Scott Morrison. Yeah, it's a cost-of-living crisis created by Scott Morrison. We know that – we know because Matthias Corbyn was on record saying it was deliberate policy of the government to suppress wages. You know, it's this two-speed economy where the Liberals only think of economic good or economic gain in terms of the rich people they meet at cocktail parties or at Chamber of Commerce breakfasts entirely saturated with men. Not just men. Yeah, yeah. White mostly men. men. White mostly, men. Mostly white men. Yeah, like just you know, a conspicuous uh, number. So, and, and this is the thing, like those are the people who whenever Scott Morrison uses the word economy, he's just talking about their profiteering. Um, one of the other extraordinary um the extraordinary statements made by Morrison at that particular breakfast, which I sort of watched in this limb-sip haze, yeah. was, and which was I think why I'm reacting to it quite an emotional way. He was asked, one of the guys, one of the many white men in attendance, asked him, sorry, you know, middle and ruling class one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it really yeah. should be specific. Uh, about skills shortages and saying, oh, look, we have this problem that we want to do these big projects in the mining industry and, we just we just don't have the uh, skills development in Australia. But are going to do about that? Now you would think because you and I are socialists, and you would go, well, you'd expand educational opportunity, and yeah. you'd provide path- pathways to TAFE employment through skills TAFE training, and university. You know, like part you could do all these partnerships, in, yeah. and then you have created a population of people with skills for life. Scott Morrison actually talked about how great the war in Ukraine was because we could get all these Ukrainian refugees to do the work. Like, that was the context. And he didn't use the term, oh, you know, like, bloody great war. But I was just like, yeah, no, that's not a long-term. Can't just rely on other countries going to pieces to fulfil skill shortages. He's consistently (laughs) ridden his luck on these things. And we've talked about it before, iron ore prices, coal prices. You know, he's relied on... The vagaries of international um, commodity markets. He's relied on the vagaries of international migration patterns to try and and effectively fill the, the gaps in his policy positions. But then, you know, he's got this focus on driving down wages. You know, in, he's made that announcement in WA. All those visits last week, where that is about driving down wages. There's a very clear message there. Whether he's consciously making visits to places that are going to sack people or whether he's just doesn't care. And he care. doesn't care. He yeah. doesn't care. Like why would he care? But, why would he care about a third of the workforce at REM being like scrappy? But, he, but you know, he's also then come out this morning and What said, was he wearing? I don't know what he was wearing. But he's, he's said that he's going to double the fines against the CFMU. Now- the CFMU. I'm just wondering if he did it in a helmet and made himself look like. Oh, like in high vis. No, yeah, well, I mean, know, he, one of the village he, people. He does seemingly like to wear high vis as he ignores the plight of the workers whose workplace he is, he is in. But I think this was more of a doorstop announcement or possibly even a media release. Um, and again, you know, it's pandering to that group of people who see the CFMU as the baddies in industrial relations, quote unquote. Because the CF- they fight for their members. And, and they win. Like, you know, say what you like about, you know, 
their attitude on some things, CFMEU has achieved better wages and safer working conditions in construction than almost any other country in the world. Construction, if you go to almost any other country in the world, construction is always, always number one or number two for the most number of deaths, injuries, and a low-paid a low paid industry. You talk to anybody who's aware of the World Cup construction projects. Workers died in their thousands to build stadiums in Qatar. Died in their thousands. They were treated like, quote, and I quote the ITUC here, treated like slaves in mass bunks, in barracks, underpaid, and literally left to die in the heat. That doesn't happen in this country. No. And it's not because Scott Morrison is so in favour of the workers. It's because unions like the CFMEU, like the ETU, like the AMWU, like the AWU, who work construction, say, we will not put the lives of our members at risk to save you a dollar building a road. That is not going to happen. We will not put the lives of young apprentices at risk so that you can save a dollar building office blocks. That is not going to happen. What Morrison wants to do is go, yeah, it's going to happen. And if you don't let it happen, we're going to fine you into oblivion. And if you keep stopping us, we're going to fine you and fine you and fine you until you go bankrupt. That's what he's trying to do. Yeah. And that's the strategy. I mean, that's been the strategy that the liberals have locked onto with industrial relations. You know, Peter Costello um, when he was a lawyer, when he was a union busting lawyer, um, it eventually yeah. ended up becoming federal treasurer, and now he's the chair of Nine Fairfax. Like he made his name looking at ways to bust unions that weren't just the typical lockouts, and yeah. it was things like taking them to court, bleeding unions of money, looking at you know electoral schedules, and this certainly happened when he was a member of the Howard government. That it was all about restricting the capacity of unions to organise and to create these vast financial penalties. For, for Australian workers to take industrial action. And this is what's just so crazy. Like we actually have a really proactive and constructive union movement, especially in construction, because yeah. better safety helps everyone and, in and, the long run. And I'm aware that many of the construction unions do work really closely with many of the construction companies. You know, when the, when the Morrison government put out its building code, which did stupid things like ban the flying of the Eureka flag. Kind of stickers on your helmet. It was Society could collapse. It was not just unions, but also construction companies who said, this is ridiculous. We actually want to work with our workers, not treat them as though they're some kind of, you know, enemy to be defeated as they walk through the gate. But that's all the liberals understand. It is. It is all they understand. It's industrial war all the time. And at this point, it's a really good reminder to join your union. Because unions do raise wages, they do and they do create more secure employment. They and, save your life, and they literally save your life. And look, you know Morrison's uh, announcements about bringing back his industrial relations changes. There are some stats that, and there's a lot of there's a lot of to and froing about this today. And probably when you're listening to this episode, you'll, it'll still be going on, right? Because Morrison's now desperately trying to pretend as though. His changes won't result in cuts to pay. He's claiming that he won't make major changes, but that his reforms, quote unquote, are about simplification and ensuring greater flexibility. Now, The Guardian's very own Paul Carpvan has fact checked this. Paul Carp, fantastic journalist, he's, knows he's a lot about a industrial fantastic relations. Fantastic journalist. And, and I have to say, on industrial, Paul Carp, I've, I've interacted with on industrial relations a number of times. He knows what he's talking about in this field. Not saying he doesn't on others, but certainly on this one he does. He has found that, quote, combined with the other sections that affect take-home pay, there is a basis for Labor to argue the bill's return will cut pay. And Labor makes the point, and using the government's own fair pay calculator, that people could be up to $14,000 a year worse off. So that And the people I'm talking about here, Van, this is not... This is not, oh, well, you know, that's obviously a banker or some kind of well paper. This is a part-time disability care employee working Friday to Sunday shift could lose more than 14000 a year from their take-home pay. I mean, that is madness. The idea that you would introduce laws in a cost-of-living crisis while wages are already going backwards that would drive down the pay 
of disability care workers, a part-time car parking attendant, only working three days a week, including Saturdays and Sundays, could lose more than 13000 a year. A butcher who works Thursday to Sunday could lose nearly 7000 a year. And yep, retail store managers. So somebody who's a retail store manager, maybe who's starting out as a manager, works night shifts, they could cop a $10,000 a year pay cut. Imagine heroes that. of the pandemic, remember? Remember yeah. when every oh, essential workers, heroes of the pandemic? So you're working. Well, this is how the Morrison Liberal National Government treats. You're working at a 24 hour Coles or Safeway or Kmart. You know, you're managing the floor and you cop a 10 grand a year pay cut. It's going to be interesting to see who they find to do those jobs. Right? You know, and if like. How many Ukrainian refugees do they think that we're going to get? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's interesting because they were always used to tell us how bad refugees were. So, mm, confused. But look, I mean, I want to put this into perspective <coughs> because we know how they're going to find workers in this industrial hellscape of massively slashed pay that they're creating, where literally wherever you go in the economy, unless you own the business, you are a victim of it. Um, is unless you run a small business, in which case you'll have no customers. Yeah, in which case you'll also be the victim of it. Yeah, in which you'll yeah. also be the victim of it. But, you know, those small business guys, I don't think they were necessarily at that breakfast in WA. No. I got the no. feeling, yeah, your mum and dad business, not exactly. Not suits, a lot of mum there, you know. Those, some of those suits probably cost more than the small business's average income. So, I mean, the, the way that they get workers in these situations is by making the alternative, which is unemployment, Absolutely horrific. And so you will cop a $10,000 reduction in pay as a night retail worker because the Morrison government uses the notion of like the dole in unemployment to terrify you into accepting a poor wage and conditions. It's awful. I mean, it is absolutely and awful. And we've seen that, of course, come out in the campaign too, right? Well, this is what I wanted to talk about because I've been up on this one this week. Yeah. And this is, of course, that Labor, to their credit, and I'm very glad that this happened, has come out incredibly strongly against what's called the cashless debit card. Yeah. Now, the cashless debit card is essentially the Australian version of food stamps. Yeah. And food stamps are this awful, awful American idea that's all about punishing the unemployed and punishing the poor, where instead of getting, like, money to live on from the government so you can make your own financial choices and try and rebuild your life when you're in a, you know, vulnerable financial situation, you get food stamps that you trade in for food and various other necessities at approved businesses. And it's about making it's about giving you the idea that you are so low and so worthless that you do not even deserve to make your own decisions around money because you don't have a job, you are at fault, you're a bad person, you're a person of poor character, and you cannot be trusted to make your own financial decisions. Like it is about humiliating the most vulnerable people in society. In America, where this is absolutely rife, right, where this cashless welfare is just like the big Right, but they've had it for decades. Right, so you've got- You've got that. At the same time, you've got workers in places like Walmart who make such little money that they also get food stamps because otherwise they wouldn't be able to survive. So you've got- Literally can't afford to eat the food that they sell. And they use the food stamps that they get at the Walmart where they work to get food. Like it it becomes such a vicious entrapped cycle of poverty that you have people working full-time, in in many cases working full-time, who are just totally- totally unable to get ahead. Oh, and it's all privatised as well. Like I want people to be aware of this and it's all about corporate relationships. So uh, uh, the Liberals, of course, have now been in power for nine years and what they've been doing to the welfare system is appalling. And we got this Trojan horse where we were told about these communities that had terrible problems with drugs and alcohol and social dysfunction and a real need for people. This was the line they ran years ago when they started trialling the cashless debit card that, you know, particularly remote and Indigenous communities were crying out for some kind of superior financial management of welfare. Yeah. And that it, instead of getting a cash payment in the dole of various other forms of pension, that they would get this cashless debit card. And only 20% of it, you'd get 20% cash of your payment yeah. and the rest would be on this card and you would have to 
shopper-approved businesses. Now, this wasn't voluntary. This wasn't individuals going, I've got a problem, I need this, yeah. although you could voluntarily sign on. People got forced onto it. Yeah. And, of course, it's been happening in places, remote places like Cape York. You know, like the, a lot of Australians weren't really quite yeah. aware that a private company called Indu was retailing this cashless debit card and the government were using it. And, of course, studies show it does absolutely nothing to affect addiction. It does, That's not what happens. Yeah. So Senator Nita Green from the Labor Party, who uh, represents Cairns and that sort of area. Yeah, she's Queensland Senator. Senator. She's based up in Cairns. She got some questions asked of the government um, in, I think, in the last sittings and got the government to admit in Senate estimates that they have been forcing people onto this card where it's been trialled, including forcing age pensioners onto this card where it was trialled. 26 Australians were, like, older Australians on the age pension were forced to use this card. And, of course, Labor have kicked off about this going, we want to scrap the card altogether. People, whatever their station, if they're receiving a pension, they they should receive dignity with that pension, whatever kind it comes in. This is absolutely outrageous and it's social control. Mm. And it's hilarious from the Liberal Party who who were the first to go, oh, we cut red tape and we don't believe in the nanny state. But it's this two-speed economy. They believe people with money who have their own money can do whatever they like and the nanny state is for the rest of us because we're all so hopeless and deserve to be poor. But, I mean, you you make a point here because Labor has said they'll scrap it entirely, right? Labor has said they'll get rid of the cashless debit card because it's not it's not an effective thing and actually, as you say, it's counterproductive. Morrison is saying that this is somehow a scare campaign by Labor um, and yet there is there is video footage of, of um, Senator McCannavan of Minister Anne Rustin, who is the minister who was advised that robo-debt should be stopped but didn't stop it. And let people die. And let people die, um, talking about how it should be rolled out more, talking about how it should be um, – how it should be, uh, and you can see this video. It's on. It's on your social. Yeah, web, I've right? posted it all over Twitter. And Rustin going. We want to move everybody on income management onto the universal platform, which is the cashless. And people card. keep going. Oh, but pensions. The age pension is not a welfare payment. There's video footage of Scott Morrison saying again and again and again that he believes the pension is a welfare payment. So, you know, all this kind of weasel words around this issue. You got to come back to what is the ideological frame? Like one of the things. This is the most important question. I'm glad you brought this up because it is one of the it is one of the things that gets lost. I think in the election campaign, how how are these individual policy decisions, these individual programs, being put together? They're being put together through ideological frames and ideological lenses. And Morrison's ideological frame on this, these things are connected, driving down wages making unemployment incredibly difficult, viewing the pension as a welfare payment, viewing people with wealth as having more worth, not just more wealth, and giving them more flexibility while giving the rest of us more rigid, less control of our lives. Like this is an ideological framework that he is putting in place. And Anne Rustin like there is actually a medical doctor in the in the Liberal caucus, a medical doctor who said she would not vote for the racial discrimination bill because of its impact on tra- tra- trans children and children more broadly. Religious discrimination bill. Sorry, the religious discrimination bill, who would not vote for it and crossed the floor on some of the amendments. Th- that person is a medical doctor, has not been considered to be health minister. Anne Rustin, who is an ideologue, who has said that increasing- I think she was the CEO of the Rose Growers Association. Oh, my God. You know, (laughs) she's going to be the health minister. She said that putting up job seeker would just mean more money for pubs and drug dealers. She's the person who wants to roll out the cashless welfare card to everybody. Like this person. She's on record saying that. And Paul Fletcher, the member for Bradfield, is Minister for Communication and the Arts. Dear God. He has said, oh, you know, the government's entirely behind the national, the um, the cashless debit card. Like they've said it again and again and again and again. And yet we have Morrison issuing a denial yesterday because Albanese quoted Anne Rushton in the presser that he did saying she has said this, we are scrapping this card. It is yeah. over. We are, it's not for anybody. We want people to have dignity. That's it. 
beginning yeah. end of. And if, and Morrison accused Albanese of being a liar. Oh, he's just lying and Labor running a scare campaign. And it's like Morrison has given interviews about this. There were I've shared all the links. You know, there were appearances in um, Fairfax where he was like, oh, yes, we'd like, we want to sort of win the conversation, sell the policy to the nation so everybody knows that it's good. He was talking about that 2019, 2020. Like this is not in the dim, dark past. No. This is not from like 1952. This term of government. This term of government with Morrison as prime minister. They have talked about it. Matt Canavan, who was like, there's no reason to not roll it out nationally. We've heard it again and again. But when the Liberals, like, telegraph what they want, what they want to do, how it fits in with their ideological beliefs, and then all of a sudden it's, you know, it's getting some heat on social. I mean, people are going crazy about this on social media. And rightly so, because at the same time, you know, because I want to talk here a little bit too, because Labor has promised to scrap the cashless debit card. It's promised to criminalise wage theft. It's promised to extend minimum uh, pay and conditions to cover gig economy workers, to put in place portable entitlement schemes in insecure industries, to have same job, same pay guarantee on the use of labour hire, to end continuous short-term contracts so that if you're on a contract, you get a right after two contracts to go permanent if you want, and having a proper definition of casual employment, which Morrison walked away from uh, when there was agreement to do that in this term of government. Uh and also, he, Elbow and the Labor Party promising to strengthen the capacity for workers to win legal cases by making job security an aim of the employment laws of this country. Like, you've got Elbow saying, this is what we're going to do. This is our suite of policies about the kind of nation we want to have. And Morrison over here, hiding away from what he's actually trying to do. So for years and years... He's chipping away and undermining the industrial relations system, the welfare system, the aged pension system, the aged care system, the NDIS, all these things that he's he's undermining and wearing away at. But when the election comes, people go, hey, you said this. Mate, you stood up there and you said this is what you want to do. Oh, it's a lie. It's a scare campaign. Stop scaring old people. How dare you scare old people? That's my job. You know, oh, it, it is. It's just, it's unbelievable. I mean, and this is the thing, and they talk about the Medicare campaign. They have cut Medicare. They have absolutely cut Medicare. And Rustin, about to become health minister, if the Morrison government's re-elected, has said that she thinks Medicare bulk billing's unsustainable. These are her words. They don't believe in collective systems. They believe in a user-pays ideology where if you can afford it, good for you, and if you can't, to the bin with you. They genuinely believe this. You know, I did one of those politics courses at university with people from, you know, various political parties who are thinking about political careers, and they are open about this. You know, I there was a woman in one of these classes I did who was a liberal who was talking about how she knew she wanted to run for politics as a liberal when she was living in Sweden, one of the most prosperous and stable yeah. societies on earth with incredible amounts of equality and all these things. Great social democracy. And she was like, you know, it just horrifying. Me, I just saw it as really holding people back, <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's you believe that." How many Porsche motor vehicles does a single household need to own? You know, like genuinely, it's it's frightening how these people view the world. And you know, one of the one of the big things that has happened in the campaign too is Labor has come out on the front foot and announced its policy on the NDIS. And I want to I want to preface this part of the conversation by saying I've done some contracting work for HireUp, which is a um, is a registered employment based NDIS platform, um, and you know I've been doing that work for a little over a year. So I've had some real insight into how the NDIS does and doesn't work in many ways, and what some of these issues are. Now, by no means am I an expert. I want to preface all of that by saying I am not an expert. But there are currently 77,000 people missing out on the NDIS because of processing backlog. Like these are numbers that were released by Bill Shorten at the NDIS policy announcement yesterday. Uh, They reckon they need up to 90,000 extra workers to fulfill the demand for the NDIS. Uh, The average plan, so for those Australians who who are need the support of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, their average plan has been cut by 
in the last 12 months by the Morrison government. Now, that has meant that there is a $1.6 billion saving, in inverted commas, in the program, which the government is banking. Labor's policy is to roll that into an NDIS future fund. Because we know, we know that this is going to be a growing area of need in our society. You know, Morrison would refer to this, and I've heard Morrison and others refer to this as a growing area of cost, as a growing expense, as a growing burden on the budget. These are all terms they use. This is a growing area of need in our society, and something like a future fund, where in those years where there is an underspend, let's bank that. Let's make sure that's absolutely available for the NDIS. Labor's announcement is also lifting the staffing cap. Like, Van, can you believe that the NDIA, the National Disability Insurance Agency, this is the public sector uh, agency that oversees the NDIS, on which hundreds of thousands of Australians rely, which employs hundreds of thousands of Australians. This agency has had a staffing cap put on it by the Morrison government and has been relying on short-term contractors and labour hire. Why? Well, what more outsourcing on like insecure work, unstable jobs, and poor conditions in the public sector? Yeah, of course, of course, it's what they do. So, so because we're not people, Ben. We're not people. We don't deserve. We don't have the money because we don't have the wealth because it's not a mahogany panelled library. I'm sorry, (laughs) it is too expedite and some of you know Mike's boyfriend's furniture, which he gave to me voluntary. I want. I want to say we got along very well, but like this is the thing. If you don't have the mahogany panelling, you, you're not a person to this government. So why yeah. why wouldn't you cap it? Because we're all just peasants, you know, and this absolute resentment well, the, that they're expected to govern systems for all of it. Well, the outcome then is, of course, they've spent $30 million on lawyers to fight against people making claims to go on the NDIS, right? So just wasteful money. So, as you say, to, to degrade and dehumanise Australian citizens from accessing their own systems. So Labor's promising a crackdown on unregistered, quote, unregistered fringe-dwelling cowboys. Uh, they want to fix the planning process, address the backlog, a new regional-based support system. Because this is the other thing, right? Like having done a little bit of work in the with the NDIS, the idea here is that the market is going to solve these problems. Oh, yeah. That always works. And we've got a hell of a story we're going to talk talk about around that because there is a lot of cowboy – there is a lot of cowboy in this system where you don't have to be registered. You can can just rock up. Like you – literally, the person who comes, the plumber who comes to fix our toilet – has more regulatory requirements and licensing and professional development imposed upon them than a quote-unquote contractor that you find on a platform that has quote-unquote connected you to the NDIS. Like, and that scares the hell out of me, right? Yeah, I mean, because we all know what happens if you use an unlicensed plumber. Yeah, right. What you find yourself swimming in is bad. That's right. Now, imagine doing, imagine that person being in your home for eight hours, helping you get out of bed, helping you shower, helping you use the facilities that the plumber came to fix. Like these are people who are engaging with vulnerable, sometimes very vulnerable people uh, at their their most vulnerable. Like it just seems bizarre that you would allow- Tell the story, Ben, because I read this, everyone, and it was just beyond. So so I've, I've taken the names out of this. Right, so last October, GT um, was booked through one of these what I call digital sham contracting platforms, and I'm not going to name the platform, but it's not an employment-based platform. GT is a person, by the way, in this story. So in this story, GT was booked to support a a client uh, who we'll call AT, right? So these are great names, Ben. Amazing. So AT. I feel like my creative writing degree (laughs) is really under threat. Thank you. So AT described herself as a wheelchair user on the autism spectrum um, and an NDIS participant, right? So GT, being a support worker, thought they'd be going to AT's house to support them. When GT arrived at what they thought was AT's home, she discovered 
that in actual fact, AT was not on the NDIS, but was actually a provider, quote unquote, treating children on the autism spectrum, and that there were two young boys at her house that day, and AT was trying to get them to eat. The boy's mother was also there and was in tears. AT, that's the person who's contracted GT, the person who has held themselves out as being an NDIS recipient but is not, took the mother out, leaving GT with the boys and telling GT to make them eat. GT says that there was an obscene amount of food in front of them. AT was then out with the mother for five hours. Leaving GT there with these two kids. With these two. Who were obviously in distress. Now, in the connection that the platform had made for GT, she thought she was connecting with a woman, an adult woman, who was a wheelchair user on the autism spectrum, not two young boys who had quite severe autism. Now, when AT returned, she was furious because GT had not been able to make these two young boys, who were clearly distressed, eat eat the food. So another worker from the same platform, who was described as a tall Austrian, arrived at the house. So when I say a tall Austrian, a tall Austrian man arrived at the house. And behind a closed door, he made the boys eat. It sounds like a dream, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like a horrible dream? It sounds absolutely horrendous. Because the paradigm keeps shifting. I'm coming to do this, but actually this is happening, but I'm leaving and I'm coming and going, and here's a tall Austrian man. Like literally this is something you'd talk about in therapy. But this happens all the time, right? GT subsequently discovered that AT had charged the boy's mother and by extension the NDIS. That's the taxpayer-funded system, more than $4,000 for that day's therapy. Therapy that she had, in fact, subcontracted to these two workers. To GT and the tall Austrian man. GT and the tall Austrian man, uh, who were only paid the base rates. GT uh, subsequently found out that AT was charging the boys' mother tens of thousands of dollars uh, on an ongoing basis and uh, for therapy and general disability support. The mother estimates she gave AT 100000 plus of NDIS funding in total over a few months. One document has a total charge of almost $40,000 for one-term support, not including resources. GTS photos of thousands of dollars worth of games, computer equipment and toys, which she says were bought out of the boys' NDIS funding. GT said she feared for the boys' lives, given what she had seen that day, and raised her concerns both about the treatment of the boys and the quote-unquote rotting of NDIS funds with the NDIS and with the platform. Neither has taken any action to investigate. The platform, quote, washed their hands of any oversight role or involvement. GT has also reported AT to the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Authority. She believes they are actively investigating but doesn't know how far they've gotten. GT subsequently found out that AT had a troubled history, including being put on trial for assaulting a nurse or being held in a psychiatric unit. Now, the person who sent me this story- This is not a supported sector. This, this is not a supportive arrangement. This the, is a dangerous arrangement that actually endangers all of the people who are involved and in it, just to be very, even the tall Austrian. And just to be very clear, the person who sent me this story, <coughs> who, I've sp- who I've spoken to at length about it, has spoken directly to AT and the mother, and the mother corroborated independently all of the things that GT has claimed in what I've just described. This is a system- that is riddled with cowboys that have to be removed from it. It is unthinkable that billions of taxpayer dollars are going to people like GT, who are then using- AT. Sorry, AT, who are then using platforms to digitally sham contract people like GT who just want to do their job, who are disability support workers, who've done their training, who've got their checks, who try and keep up their professional development. Now, of course, GT has left the gig economy side of the NDIS and has gone into steady employment because her experience with the platform that so so many people say, oh, but it provides flexibility and they're so good. 
Well, stories like GTs are happening every single day in the NDIS. Oh, it's just it, the, all of these systems are a disaster. And this is why the ideological framework is really important to understand because fundamentally the, the Liberals have, have created this system. Labor created the NDIS and we're in government for, what, 15 minutes before yeah. the Liberals got elected in 2013 and they have made this system in their own image. And, and can I just say on that, because uh, the CPSU makes the point there was supposed to be 10,000 ongoing permanent workers in the NDIA and there is less than 70% of that number actually been employed. Well, I mean, and this is the thing. It's this idea that, oh, the market will take care of it. Like, we'll just assign, it's always called vouchers or credits or, you know, and we'll give you the voucher that will be X amount of dollars and you can spend it how you like and therefore your spending power will determine what services you need and, and what you don't. I'm going through this with the My Age Care system at the moment, which I've got to say is actually stressing me out, as you well know, and causing me enormous amounts of distress. My mother is very, very sick. You know, we're entering a period of my mother's care, which is going to be complex. I'm not a trained support worker by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just trying to give my mother the dignity and comfort she deserves at the most vulnerable time of her life. And, you know, we went on the My Age Care system, what, seven months ago and were assessed and then I got given this, you know, you get assessed, they go, oh, well, she can have these but not these things and these are the things that we think she might want. It's not coordinated by one person. It goes out to tender. It's like a market process where a bunch of different services get in contact with you and sort of sell you their wares. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I I don't want choice. I don't want any choice. I want an expert to tell me in consultation with me and my mother, how to support her Mm. and for those services to exist so my mother can be in her own home, which is a lot cheaper than the government having to house her in an aged care facility, which is why these sort of services are supposed to exist. And so my mother, who worked all of her life, very, you know, like engaged participant of her community, was a volunteer, all of these things, so she can have dignity and support and maintain connection to community and society. And but that's not how these systems work. And it's and it's sort of interesting how the concept of choice and control gets twisted, right? So it's, you know, your mother wants to be able to make choices about her life and, and the things that she does and how she does them. She doesn't really care which service provider that is, right? Like ultimately it's about... And I think Bill Shorten said something like this yesterday when he was announcing the NDIS NDIS policy. It's about the person's quality of life, isn't it? And and that's right. Like it's about how do these things work for people? Because we feel like we have to accommodate these service providers, like because we're getting something from the government, but it doesn't actually work with what we need. So my mother and I find ourselves in these really awkward situations where we get these random phone calls going, oh, we're going to come and give you some like random disconnected physio, three sessions or half a session or this or whatever. We're going to send some random person to your house. Maybe they can do the laundry. And it's like, okay, we'll come up with something for them to do. These aren't, this is not what we need. We need a conversation that actually talks through what the future looks like. So there is some planning and there is some support. And I'm just like, how do, how the hell do people do this when they have kids? How on earth do people manage, you know, their, their care responsibilities to elderly Australians if, they're all, if they also have children? And, you know, I've had this conversation with friends who said they don't. You know, it's a disaster. It's a schmozzle. Every worker who I speak to in these systems is like, we know it doesn't work, but this is the best that we've got. This is the best we can offer you. We know it's all over the shop. And I'm just like, I really want to talk about these things in the election because there is a massive policy difference between Labor's approach to welfare and systems and collective responsibility and what we actually pay taxes for and this free market, inefficient, ridiculous lunacy of the Liberal Party. Let's be really clear here because there are – actual outcomes to this as well, right? Like it's not, you know, GT's story and your story and the story of thousands of other people interacting with the NDIS or with the aged care system uh, or, God forbid, having to interact with both at the same time uh, is, is obviously very troubling, right? And they are and they are reasons to fix the system. But underneath, and this is what, I, you know, you know I like to get underneath. What What's going on here? <laughs> means what, yes what if is, you don't believe me you should see the way ben deals with the hedges yeah you, you know what what actually is going on here so there is a and i'm going to name this one because a major platform 
called Mabel exists. And this is a platform that got government support during the pandemic to provide aged care workers to aged care centres that had to be sent home because they weren't properly trained, right? And Mabel's response was, well, we just connect people. Like all we did was send people the link. We've got an app. We've got got an app. You want to develop an app? Um, So this is a – this is the CEO said that they've been receiving – between 1,000 and 2,000, quote, unquote, applications a week to go on the platform, right? They've just received $100 million in foreign private equity investment. Now, foreign private equity investment, I'm not going to do this for very long, but if you're not aware of what that is, Google it. Basically, it is the dark pools of money. It's where the richest people and the richest investors in the world put their money so that somebody else can go and make a lot more money for them and come back and give them a bigger bucket of cash than the bucket of cash they gave them. And you'd think, how can a platform that simply connects workers to people on the NDIS and the aged care system, how can that be somewhere where people with large buckets of cash go to get even bigger buckets of cash? Well, I can tell you how. Because Mabel, their CEO, told, and it's publicly available information, the links are all there, a margin of 14.3%. 14.3%. That means that they're making money, 14% profit, off delivering the NDIS and aged care. That money is now going back to these investors. International billionaires. International billionaires and foreign investment funds. And some fairly interesting local investors too, I have to say. You, you can Michael West did a piece on this, and there's Packers and Murdochs and all sorts involved. We love Michael West. It is a it is a indictment on the Morrison government that you've got people suffering, it's packages being squeezed cut. so thoroughly that billionaires have gone, there's money in this. 14% margin. Oh, it's 14%. Just, it's unbelievable. It's heartbreaking for me. Like, you know this, every single time I get a My Age Care phone call, I'm literally more confused at the end of it than I was in the beginning. And still we have no services and it's all over the shop. And I just feel like they have designed a system that, you know, receives money from the government in order to exist but which I, I genuinely feel this is designed in such an inefficient way that structurally they hope my mother is dead before she actually has to use any services. That's well, how I feel. It, and when I hear about a 14% margin van, I go, well, we know how they're making that money, right? They're waiting for people to die. Oh, it's they're hoping just, people drop off. I'm they just, spend $30 million on lawyers fighting against people getting access to the NDIS because they know it's cheaper for them to spend the money doing that than it is to deliver the services because there are price gouges and quote-unquote cowboys ripping off the system and ripping off our elderly, our aged, our Australians People with a disability. People who care for them, you and know. families. Oh, it's, it's just- it's, it's outrageous. It is. It is absolutely outrageous. And I tell you in the context of this election- <sighs> Like these are the stories about people's engagement with government that need to be told. People's engagement with government are their workplace conditions. Will I retain my job or am I going to get scrap heaped and my job offshored to yep. Vietnam? What's the government going to do Will my wages get cut? Will my wages get cut? Will my my job as a night filler at Coles, will that be worth $10,000 less next year? Will I be able to unionise and lift my wages? Yeah. Does going into a dangerous industry like construction, is am I likely to be safe in that industry and paid for the risk that I take holding down those jobs or is that just going to be abolished because, you know, nobody wants to see a sticker on my helmet? Like what does it mean to have families trying to use my aged care services or childcare services or, God help them, residential aged care or the NDIS? Like these are the these are the issues for ordinary Australians because they are at the point where individuals, families, households meet government. But Hey, Ben, what's the cash rate? You know, like totally, utterly ridiculous discourse around what the election is or should be. And the Prime Minister lying, actively lying about statements that he and his own ministers have made on record about what their policy priorities are. I think you've hit the nail on the head, Van. You know, that's absolutely where we're at in this election. 
and yeah. into the bucket, by the way, with anyone who ever says, oh, yeah, Labor Liberal just the same, you know, like, Coles and Woolies of politics. I just want everyone listening to this, pro- this program to know that anybody who says anything that pig ignorant is someone who you never have to have a political conversation with again because their, their willful ignorance is toxic, personal, poisonous and actually destructive to any kind of realistic conception of how this country is run and what its priorities are. Couldn't agree with you more, Van. I think you've hit the nail on the head. This selection is a discussion, you know, it's a it's a fight to have the discussion. It's a fight to have the discussion about what government really is and what it really means in people's lives on one side, and that's what Labor's trying to do. <coughs> And the Liberals, of course, who just want to talk about how much they don't like Labor, really, um, both Labor Party, Labor Movement. Yeah, you don't know anything about Anthony Albanese, who has been a Member of Parliament for 25 years, is former Deputy Prime Minister. Anyway, I think we need to end on some good news. Oh, we do. I love good news. Because this is actually great news, right? Like, So this is good news. Ben's on- desperation to cheer me up <laughs> in my illness. Good news on solar storage. So a pair of Swedish scientists have designed a microchip that stores solar energy in liquid. They shipped it to China, where three months later it was able to be converted into electricity. This is amazing. This is really amazing, right? So it's it's about a specifically designed and engineered molecule that changes shape when it comes into contact with sunlight, rearranging carbon, nitrogen, and hydrogen to form an isomer, which is an energy-rich molecule uh, with a different configuration that holds its shape when immersed in liquid. The catalyst activates the stored isomer in the liquid to change back into their original forms, releasing heat and generating electricity. Hence, the technology's name is Molecular Solar Thermal Energy Storage Systems. You've got to love when scientists name things, right? This is how Ben won me. By the way, he always does the reading. Look at him doing the reading. If it's- only you could see his eager little... <laughs> Love me face right good, now. Like this is amazing because it means that solar energy can be stored in this way for up to 18 years. 18 years. That means imagine the solar panels on your roof, you know, your ch- a child is born and comes home and on the day of their 18th birthday you can present them with a battery of all the electricity that's been generated. What a love gift. <laughs> you know, it's certainly better than the traditional like piece of jewellery or bottle of wine. So, yeah, I mean, they this, the scientists have warned that this is, you know, very early days and sure. they're only looking at very small amounts of energy. But in terms of looking at, you know, eternal arguments against the nonsense of Matt Canavan and other climate denialists who are like, oh, yeah, well, you know, the energy doesn't work or when the sun's not, like, it's all about energy storage. And, and they were and they were clear, like, at the moment you would think about it as using it for things like um, wireless headphones and small electronic yeah, devices. Yeah, small electronic appliances. Where you could have a chip that powered your thing Forever, yeah, it's amazing. amazing. It's totally amazing. If only we had a government that you know maybe invested in universities and research and the CSIRO and all the other things the Liberals have cut to pieces. But this is the good news on that front too, Van. We're in an election and we have an opportunity to elect a government that will actually back research. Like it turns out, these Swedish scientists uh, working in Europe and in a co-collaboration with their partners. Uh, in China and around the world. That's all the news we're going to have for the week on Wednesday. Of course, there is a leaders debate tonight. Uh, If you're unfortunate enough as we are to have Sky News, you can watch it. We're probably going to live tweet it, which you may not, it may be over by the time that you get this message, but it should be pretty funny. You can always go back and check our feeds. But of course, the week on Wednesday continues to grow and we continue to have massive growth I'm just blown away. You, you're all doing such a great job sharing, liking, commenting, discussing these episodes with people you work with, with family, with friends. Like it's phenomenal the amount of feedback we get. I'm sorry if I haven't been able to get back to everybody yet. We do try and get back to as many people as we can. Keep the feedback coming though. We like to incorporate it into the show. And of course, people have been making a contribution to help us advertise in what is a very expensive media cycle at the moment. <laughs> Because of the election, but we are reaching more and more and more people, and um, it's because we're getting more and more support. Van. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody. So we get growth every week, and because that's because people make contributions to the show, which we spend on advertising, and it's because of people 
don't have the dollars to make contributions. Um, hopefully, you know, spending it on activism and changing the world and otherwise, uh, they are recommending the show to their friends and that makes all the difference in the world because we want a lot of people want to have these discussions. This is the consistent feedback. People want to have discussions about ideological frameworks and, you know, prioritise the actual material existences of ordinary people. Absolutely. So these are our cadre supporters. Now, these are people who are contributing, uh, contributing $20 a month to uh, to helping us promote the show. How fast can you do it? Leona Gibbons, someone, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, wise, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Christine Cole, Richard Sands, I am not on Twitter, Glenn, Robbie, Brash, Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, Cattigal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as at Red, White and Blue Lou, Extend the Reach, uh, Stuart Munn, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapin, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannon, Bill Collis, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, Gail Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Not On Twitter, Sarah, Bo Sullivan, Elaine and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Q Patterson, Lizard, Twizzle, Buncombe, Basher, Katie Ward, At The Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, also known as Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson and Renee McGee. You guys are great. Our Extend the Reach supporters, of course, give $10 a month towards uh, helping us promote the show. And a huge shout out to everyone who's our Buck a Week supporters who are chipping in $5 a month to help us reach more and more people. That is the week on Wednesday for this, the 20th of April, 2022. It's all happening. And I'm going to be in Clunes and in Bendigo doing fun stuff on the 1st of May, talking about my book, if you want your book signed. For May Day. For May Day, with my peeps on May Day. Uh, If you want your book signed um, or to hear me just yak on about the things that I find interesting, like disinformation and how much I hate fascists, you really should come along. I'll put all of that on my Facebook page and we'll put it on the Week on Wednesday Facebook page as well. And if you're not a member of that community, you should sign up because we post crazy stuff all the time absolutely don't forget to tune in on sunday for our weekend wrap until then love you vanny oh i love you too you are the best bye Bye.